Hello, and welcome to The Future Report, a podcast hosted by social research company McCrindle for anyone curious about the future. My name is Ashley Fell, and each week I'll be sitting down with a guest to discuss a topic or trend that you need to know about. As the clock ticked over to 2021, many people looked forward to putting a pretty chaotic year of 2020 behind us. I know myself was included in that. And while it is good to have hope and optimism for the future, 2021 probably didn't pan out as many of us had hoped. With the Delta strain of the coronavirus sending countries around the world into lockdown and Australia navigating quite a different experience than that of the year before, 2021 certainly posed its challenges. But while a lot of the year was impacted by COVID-19, other things actually happened too. From demographic change to political events, from social trends to consumer shifts and even technological advancements and changes. Uh, all of this happened and it's all what we're talking about today in, in our episode of The Future Report, where we're going to review the year that was and how this is going to help us to prepare for what we can expect to come next. And to help me reflect on this and look to the future is Mark McCrindle. So, hey, Mark, great to have you back on the Future Report podcast. Great to be back, Ash. Although this is the Future Report podcast uh, and we talk about the future as social researchers and as you very eloquently explained and I think our very first episode of the podcast, we can learn a lot about people and trends by looking back and looking at history and, and I guess that does help us to gain a more informed picture of the trends that will happen in the future. And as you know, Mark, each year we usually write an analysis about the year in review. And I've actually been tasked with writing a few of these in my time. And it's always fascinating to look back on the year. And often when I do it, and when I did it even in preparation for today's podcast, I was like, oh, oh yeah, I forgot that that happened this year. Uh, You know, we had an earthquake of all things happen in Melbourne. Uh, We had crazy floods happen in New South Wales earlier this year. More recently, Mark Zuckerberg announced the metaverse. Uh, We had celebrities jetting off into space. Taylor Swift and Adele released new and re-released albums that broke Spotify records. Uh, When it comes to sport, many of us watched the 2020 Olympics in 2021 and in lockdown. And I know for me, that was a very welcome, um, you know, addition to my life in that season. For the soccer fans, we had Euro 2021. For the tennis fans, we had Wimbledon. And and I remember personally, you know, loving to see Ash Barty take the title at like 1am in the morning. That was epic. Uh, Some of the most searched news events on on Google included Cleo Smith, Alec Baldwin, Bert Newton and the fall of of Afghanistan and those terrifying scenes that we saw broadcast at at airports. Uh, Times Person of the Year was Elon Musk. Oxford English Dictionary's Word of the Year has been deemed to be Vax, V-A-X. And in Australia, the most Googled how-to question was how to get a vaccination certificate. So hopefully that just paints a really brief, interesting, multi-layered picture of 2021. And that does show us that it's been another year of great change and uncertainty and not just the last year, but the last 18 months to to two years. Uh, Mark, could you tell us a little bit about the psychology of individuals and as a collective about how we approach the changes that we've experienced in the last couple of years and the, the unprecedented challenges they've presented to us? Sure. And uh, that's a lot of change that you just <laughs> overviewed. Uh, it's hard to recall all of what we went through just in the last year, let alone the last couple. And uh, volatility really does define these times. Well, I guess the way we experience life 
uh, is a little bit like a driver's point of view as we drive down the road. You know, we, we look ahead, we prepare for what's ahead, but only as far as we can see. And even occasionally we'll look in the revision mirror, uh, see what we went through, but uh, but only for a quick glance. So in other words, our, our frame of reference is quite a limited one. As far as we can see, a little bit about by, uh, by what's gone behind, and that's line of sight defined, and that's it. And and COVID was a classic example of that. You know, we we heard we go back to the start of 2020, this virus emerging in some countries, but hey, we don't need to worry about it yet because it's not in our country or it's not in our state. I don't know anyone who's got it was the approach. And so we we sort of keep driving and and worry about things when we need to worry about them. And if it's not in our lane, we don't so much prepare for it. And that's that's how it happened. And finally, COVID did land in our lane. It landed right ahead, uh, but we sort of swerved and uh, somehow avoided the worst of it. It impacted us, of course, but but we got through uh, COVID, we thought. But that was just the first wave. And then there was a second wave and then there was a third wave. And, and it was amazing how we, we sort of did almost do the driver thing. And if we were hit with something like COVID and we swerved around it or got through it, we thought, we're done with that. We're finished with that, and we keep driving forward. Uh, but the waves kept coming, and and then Delta emerged in in May 2021. You know, we thought it was all finished. We we're out of lockdowns, at least here in Australia, and suddenly back into it, and uh, somehow got a handle on on the Delta variant. And six months later, we hit with Omicron, and uh, this has been the the nature of it. And each time, there's a twist in the pandemic experience, it surprises us, but it shouldn't because the fact that we've had the first wave should tell us that there's a higher probability that we'll have a second. And the fact that we had one or two variants should tell us that there's a chance that there'll be more. And of course, there are many more Greek alphabet letters uh, yet to come, which uh, which sort of tells us something of the challenges of of these pandemics, but also something of how we experience these situations by by not overly preparing, even though it's foreseeable what is to take place, uh, we we just sort of keep our eyes a little bit as far as as how far we can see, and we um, we don't really you know, go too much beyond that. Yeah, it's so true. I remember um, even for us when we launched the Generation Alpha book in May, and we had an in person book launch in oh we we launched in April. We had an in person book launch in May, and I was like, oh, how amazing is it that you know the worst of the coronavirus is behind us, and we can have this in person book launch? And then we were in lockdown like three weeks later mm. for the longest lockdown us Sydney siders had experienced to date in the pandemic. So clearly, there are some cognitive biases that we have as as human beings that sort of prevent us from learning even after we go, oh, there are more variants, but we still tend to be unaware in some ways. I mean, are there any other cognitive biases, Mark, that do impair our ability to be prepared for these trends and these changes that we probably should come to expect? Yeah, well, I, I think that that first one, you know, the limited frame of reference is is a strong one. And we see that in so many areas. In fact, as you began this discussion, you talked about how two years ago, uh, we were in the worst bushfires we had ever seen, which was coming on the back end of a drought. And we really are the nation of droughts and flooding rains, as we, we know from uh, that poem, My Country. And, and and so we had the drought and the, the bushfires, the, the most expensive 
natural disaster Australia has ever experienced with those fires of just two years ago. But we, we, we sort of quickly then moved to the next thing that was coming our way, which was the pandemic. And, and in fact, um, thinking on natural disasters, it was uh, at the start of this year that we had the floods uh, across New South Wales that were uh, devastating. And, and even in that, you know, we, we learned phrases like a one in 20 year flood or for some areas a one in 50 year flood. And, and we, we sort of misapply that, I guess, from a probability perspective. And we say, well, you know, we got through the one in 50 flood, won't have that for another 50 years, but it doesn't work like that. It's better called a 2% flood, which tells us that in any given year, you've got a 2% chance of experiencing one. And so the the gambler's fallacy comes to mind here as something that holds us back from preparing for what's next, for managing risk. Because if we think it's time-bound, if we think, well, we experienced the one in 50-year event, we won't have that for a while, um, we, we, we misunderstand the reality of possibilities and probabilities. It's like if we're flipping a, a coin and we get three heads in a row, we think, well, we're much more likely to get a tail next time we flip it. Uh, but the fact is, it's just as likely to be another head. It's 50-50 every time. And so thinking about a 2% flood or a 1 in 50 year flood, it's as likely to, 2% likely to happen this year as as any year, as the year after a, a flood event. Uh, and so that that fallacy we have, I think, does mean that we don't really prepare as much for, for what's to come. And and so a short reference period, um, the, the, the the gambler's fallacy, thinking we got through that, we got through the flood, we got through the, you know, we've even probably thought we've got through the era of terrorism now. Um, we got through the natural disaster phase. We're almost, we feel through the pandemic, you know, what's next? But what's next is as likely to be what we've just got through from that probability perspective. So we ought not think that uh, we're, we're immune from from these experiences that we've had. We It's not too far back uh, to 2008 when we had the global financial crisis. And, you know, an, the next economic crisis is as likely to be now. In fact, we're closer to when the next one will be than we were a year ago. Again, just from that probability perspective, and it's true of natural disasters, and it's true of uh, uh, the next constitutional crisis, or mass industrial action, or technology meltdown, or internet uh, collapse, or, or crash. You know, all of these mega issues that we've seen in our past uh, that we've lived through. Uh, are more likely to occur just as we move through time from a probability perspective rather than less likely because, hey, we just got through it. So so being aware of these realities of the times that we're in, of the uh, experiences that we have, and again, looking down the road to prepare for what's next, these are important to, to keep in mind. Yeah, it's really fascinating to listen to you talk about that and even that once in a 50-year or 100-year flood. And I'm, again, just shocked that that was even, even though I said it in the introduction of this podcast, that it was this year because my brother and sister-in-law had to move out of their house for fear of it being flooded and move in with my parents-in-law. And then we were carting their stuff back and forth for a day driving through floodwaters in a big four-wheel drive because we were, there was a real valid concern they were going to be flooded. And yeah, it's it's just, it's a bit sobering even to hear you say that where you're like, oh, the next one could be right around the corner. And, and here we are at the end of 2021. And there is, we know from our research, a lot of optimism about the future. And, but I guess, is that 
part of it where we go, oh, we've surely, like that kind of, surely not, surely we're not going to have another one of these Black Swan events. Haven't we had enough? Like, is that just a faulty way of looking at the world? And is that just inherent in us as humans? Or is it that we're optimistic? Like, what are these, why are, we, why are these faulty ways of sort of looking at the world and, and that impact our I guess ability to be prepared for these trends. Any insights there, Mark, about our human nature? Well, it's a it's a coping strategy, and it's a very positive one because if we were too realistic, indeed <laughs> pessimistic, uh, we would sort of not want to wake up the next day. You know, we would yeah. have trouble putting our, our our best foot forward and uh, and tackling the world. Um, so mm. it's a it's a blessing that we do have optimism as humans, almost as the default setting. It's it's great that we can encourage each other to get through. And you know that's this nation. This nation is the land of natural disasters, but it's also the land of mateship, of getting together, of helping out. Your mate, or your family, as you said, with the with the youth and, and and those in in floods, it's it's the land that comes together, the communities that 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 forge um, uh, resilience and and better outcomes uh, when we're faced with these challenges, and so that that optimism, that ability to bounce back, is is key to human nature. It's the Australian way of life, and it's important. And probably, you know, there brings another. Another um, approach that we have to life and change is that we we maybe even have on our radar more these these low probability but high impact events like natural disasters. Um, we sort of in some ways half expect them in Australia, and that's a useful thing because they do come our way from time to time. Um, and and I mentioned stock market crashes or maybe electricity grid shutdowns. We've had rumblings of that from time to time in our summers. Uh, even we're more on the risk profile thinking about regional military conflicts or uh, mm. property bubbles. And and so we, we, we know that markets can crash. We, we, we think about these things. Probably what we don't so much think about, which can have massive impacts, are more incremental changes, uh, things that creep up on us. They're probably low impact from our mindset, but they're they're high likelihood. They're happening all the time. I mean, one of those is is uh, the cost of living that, that sort of creeps up. If we now look at house prices and it's been creeping up and creeping up and and yet it has massive implications, big ramifications. It means that people are more likely to rent rather than own, which means they move more frequently. They don't invest in their communities as much. We don't get as much tenure from staff members because people are more insecure with their employment. They have to live further from where they're employed. And so commute times have a drain. Uh, people don't start families uh, in the younger years as much and are having fewer children. So it impacts the birth rate because people like to have a home before they start a family. And so it's no surprise that right at the time in Australia that we've got the highest house prices ever, we've got the lowest birth rate ever recorded. So we can see these slow creep events like cost of living pressures have massive implications and flow on implications that can transform the economy and stability and social well-being and our community fabric. Another uh, fallacy that we sometimes have that helps us not prepare as much as we should is this 
singular direction fallacy. So we see, we think that things will just head in one direction. Um, so uh, people maybe look at Bitcoin and, and they say, well, look, it's gone up. I mean, it started as nothing and yeah, it gets a little bit up and down, but overall it goes up. We think the same about property prices. You can't go wrong, safe as houses. Uh, but the fact is that all markets might go up, but they also go down given enough time. That's just the reality of these things. And so it's a false thought to believe that things will only head in one direction. Um, if we think about cryptocurrency that a lot of people are getting into, we've just in the last month seen two crypto markets, crypto exchanges collapse uh, in Australia and go out of business, people losing money there. We've got the RBA coming out saying, if you invest in crypto, you're on your own. Don't expect the banks <laughs> to back you up. So that's a pretty sobering message. And as for, mm. for housing, um, yeah, I think over a 20-year time frame, probably even a 10-year time frame, properties go up. But properties also see corrections and properties in certain areas um, can go down significantly. And, and even over a five, six, seven-year period, people can be in the red. And so if people are sort of needing to make those payments over now something that's worth less, you know, there's a challenge there. So so this fallacy of thinking that things will head in one direction can can cause us to to make some missteps. And um, and even these metaphors, these slogans, safe as houses, as I mentioned, can cause a little issue. Safe as houses, yes, if someone's investing and living in that home, because people tend to hold on to that and do whatever they can to to maintain that home that is the roof over their head. But it's not safe as houses when someone has a property portfolio of five years units that they bought off the plan, highly leveraged in, a, in an era where interest rates next step are going to go up and suddenly there are payments that can't be made and the thing collapses and the off the plan doesn't work out and, and so um, someone's planned um, wealth vehicle collapses. So, so being aware of the context, the volatility of this market, watching out for some of these cognitive biases, some of these truisms that don't always play out, I think will help us prepare astutely uh, for these fast-changing times. Mm, and even listening to you talk about all these ways that we as human beings think and, and the psychology behind it, I also feel like I'm being rebuked in how I think <laughs> about certain things. So it's very helpful to just, like you said, be aware of those, yeah, inherent, probably unconscious biases that we hold about, yeah, certain different aspects of life. Um, and I wanted to just transition now, Mark, to talking about demographics. Uh, we've talked about these on the podcast before, and I guess to a non-social researcher or someone not now field, it might not be something that they think about very often. And I've shared again that at conferences, we're introduced as demographers and you get the glazed look and people are like, oh, numbers and stats. But like you just shared, they, they paint a story. They tell they tell the story. They they paint the picture of, of how our communities and society is changing. And when we think about demographics, they have big impacts. Um, they're a big, you know, government um, organizational decisions being made on demographic insights and forecasts. And it's an area that we study a lot. Um, but what trends are you seeing there? Anything from the last year that you think will carry over into the future? Or, you know, we, we've talked about rise of the regions on the podcast before. That's one that I think we've seen a bit of a change and a shift in demographically and, and population wise. But anything, any trends that you're seeing with regards to the demographic change? Yeah, and it is a key category for us to think about because it does determine so much of our future as 
as little focused as most people have on it. It's it's key. In fact, a treasurer of 20 years ago, famous Australian treasurer, Peter Costello, said demography is destiny, and it really is. And it's far more predictable than a lot of other trends because you can track it. And it's one of those slow creep trends that, again, is, is probably um, – we think, at least in the short term, low impact, but it's high probability. And over time, that incremental change transforms our nation, transforms the economy. We take one example being the aging of our population. It creeps up on us. Uh, as we began the 1970s, our median age in our population was still in the 20s. Here we are today, and it's in the late 30s. As we enter the next decade, the 2030s, the median age in Australia will be edging into the early 40s. That's the midpoint in our population. And the point of that is to highlight that 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 we're aging. Now, that's great. You know, people are living longer. But what it means is we've got an aging workforce. We've got mass retirements here at the moment. We've got uh, implications of that being a skills shortage and a labor market shortage and a lot of industries and sectors that are struggling to find the staff to plug those gaps as older workers ease out of those roles and you add to that um, low birth rates, so fewer younger people coming through. You add to that closed borders, so we can't rely on the backpackers and the overseas workers to plug the gaps. And suddenly we're seeing shortfalls in the hospitality sector, in retail, in in even a lot of professional roles. Uh, and that has implications in terms of rising costs of business in terms of not being able to fulfill the demand that they're experiencing. Uh, of course, um, an aging population brings benefits. It uh, creates a, an economic boom as we have older people spending more money. They've got more time as they retire, and they're the wealthiest generation of retirees ever. Uh, they don't hold back from spending. In fact, they upgrade the car and oftentimes will upgrade the home, even though they might downsize the scale of it, they upsize the fittings and the features, go for something new. And that stimulates the economy and construction and, and unit living. They travel uh, more than than most generations and more than older people in the past did. They make great contributions to the labor market, not so much through employment, but through voluntary contributions as volunteers and as uh, carers for their grandkids and helping their own children uh, get out and, and maintain those two incomes. Um, but it by not understanding that and by not engaging with those shifts, we miss out on consumer opportunities that they create. We, we miss out on preparing for the shortages that we're experiencing in the labor force, and that can have some, some big costs. I mean, one of those that we're seeing at the moment is the, the reemergence of inflation. You know, we've just been used to prices going down in terms of costs of goods and services, uh, and suddenly um, there's bottlenecks, there's some uh, fulfillment shortfalls, and now prices are back on the rise. And inflation, something that we hadn't thought about for, for decades, is, is emerging, and that'll be you know, massively uh, impacting across our economy over the, the next couple of years. So, so you know, these are the slow creep changes that have big transformative impacts, and, uh, and we need to prepare in advance for them. Yeah, absolutely. And we've, yeah, we talk a lot about the aging population in our presentations because it is a huge issue. And I think you uh, really aptly 
described up there that it is a slow creep thing. It's obviously aging takes a long, long time and all of a sudden, yeah, you compare the data over a decade and you're like, wow, the median age is, like you said, approaching the 40s and going to be there soon. And um, again, it reminds me to when we advise organizations or anyone listening to the podcast to not ever discount or forget about the older generations and again, to not use the okay boomer in a dismissive way, because like you said, they are contributing to the economy. They're looking after grandchildren. They're traveling there more than younger generations, like you mentioned. So it's not always a story that we hear, but it is a demographic reality that we need to be aware of. Um, What about politically, Mark? We've got a federal election coming up in the new year. Um, What do you see politically in that in that sort of sphere? What are the trends that you think people listening to the podcast today need to need to be aware of? Well, the last two years have seen massive changes to how governments have operated. We've seen governments grow in their role in our lives. Uh, They've grown in their legislative controls. We've seen public health orders and pandemic mandates and enforced borders, uh, both international and, of course, state borders here in Australia as well. And suddenly travel permits have reemerged and electronic check-ins and sort of the way of life that really is not experienced outside of wars. You know, it's it's just been incredible. And we've tolerated these as a nation, as a society, of course. But but now as the, the acuteness of the pandemic eases, as we look to move back out of lockdowns, um, there's a sense that 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 there's some fraying there, some some impacting of of Australians wanting their freedom, of people around the world wanting their freedom once more, um, yet still some of those uh, government controls in place. Now, Australia is a, a nation where the role of government is well accepted. Uh, you know, we we have socialised medicine, universal health care. The Medicare is is almost you know accepted across the board. NDIS is a very popular policy where where through taxpayers, you know, the most needy are, are looked after in our society. You know, we we have a, a strong role for government and conspiracy theories rarely get much traction in Australia. We're we're not anti-government in this nation. We're we're fairly collectivist in that mindset. And so we are quite different to the US, which will rail against uh, a sense of their freedoms being impinged upon. Um, And and so, you know, the role of of government is accepted and particularly in these uh, tough pandemic times, it's been understood the the reasons for those restrictions. However, uh, the encroachment has been significant. And if we stop and look at where things are at now and the role of government in our lives now compared to two years ago, it's it's been a marked change beyond what any of us have experienced in our lifetimes in any other prior period. And so getting that balance right will be key for the future because there's only so much that Australians will accept there before you start to get a real robust pushback and and the fraying of the trust in governments. And trust is very high in government. Uh, we, we do hold a, a positive view of, of government and policy and, and government agencies generally, uh, but maintaining that, ensuring that clear communication for the policies that are in place uh, are, are made is key. Otherwise, you start to get the worst of that of that pushback, of that questioning, and and of the of the the darker fake news spreading through um, social media sites. So we've seen the odd protest emerge and and the fringe elements of that. So governments really need to remember that uh, many of us here in Australia are the stock of convicts uh, and have always pushed back on a bit of authority. Uh, We are a bit of an anti-authority nation, even though, as I say, there's warmth generally and trust in government. So 
getting that balance right will be the key theme of 2022 and ensuring that anything that doesn't need to be there um, is removed and the government moves from probably big government to, towards more uh, benevolent and, and mainstream government and not overreaching in its role in our lives and communities. Yeah, and as I was reflecting on what you were sharing there, Mark, um, your comment about, you know, awareness and involvement with government, you know, even now compared to two years ago is so different. And I've been reflecting with people in my life over the last few months saying we've, I've never known so much or all the names of all the state premiers or how much about them because never really had to come across that. I was never really invested in that world, to be honest, but now we know so much about it because it impacts our daily lives. And I was very one of those people who was always listening to the 11am update with the coronavirus and, and just knowing how we were responding and what to do, like you said and um, the role of government in our lives has changed. I love what you shared there around trust is high, uh, but it's also very fragile and, yeah, it needs to be, I think, like you said, clearly communicated to avoid the fake news, to keep the trust high, to keep the, I guess, the compliance, maybe lack of a better word, uh, with with our area. And I guess it's a reflection as well that I have that uh, policy and, and government you know, it, it helps us and our society flourish through democracy, but it's not just happening at the ballot box anymore. And, and you were sharing your thoughts with me on this earlier um, around, yeah, it's it's changed now with the emerging generations through social media, through online petitions, through um, social media influences, the power of celebrities even getting involved in the political sphere and, and the people that listen to them and, and influence them. So it's it's certainly a, a different context and I guess that's really been aided by technology, which is kind of what I just want to touch on for a moment. Um, and when I was preparing for this podcast, I was reading an article written by Bill Gates and I just wanted to read something that he said about his reflection of the last couple of years and, and technology and how that's changed. So he says, as unbelievable as it sounds, we're only starting to see how how digitization is going to change our lives. There is so much potential for technology to create more flexibility and options for people. I'm hesitant to suggest that anything about the COVID-19 pandemic has been positive. But when we look back at this period, I suspect that history will view it as a time of terrible devastation and loss that also sparked lots of massive changes for the better. And he went on to single out three areas where we have become more digitized. Um, his areas were office work, so obviously the work from home era and the changes to how we work and where we work, uh, education, so schools going online, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about uh, in future episodes as we conduct our sort of sector-wide study into the future of the education sector, and also healthcare. And I guess that kind of leads on to aged care as well, like we were talking about earlier, Mark. But any reflections there on on technology and and even Bill Gates's reflections on on how that has really changed our lives over the last two years? Well, it's been fantastic, hasn't it, to see that we could use this technology to have flexible learning and working from home and telehealth and all of those will be here to stay. Uh, we'll still visit a medical practitioner in person, but not always. We'll increasingly use telehealth. We'll still gather in the workplace, but we can work a day or two a week from home. We we still want to gather for social events or for learning events or for conferences, but we still can utilize uh, these technologies that we've become quite used to for that connecting purposes. We can communicate in traditional ways or now we can use uh, the, the speed of light means of, of technological connections to be informed and keep up to date with what's happening. And it has kept us safe as well. You know, the check-ins and uh, alerts if we've been in an exposure area in a pandemic, all of that has been helpful. Um, but 
you know, the other side of technology is that people want to know that they're in control of it rather than it being in control of them and that they have the options and it's an opt-in side of things rather than getting a sense that it's actually being used as a tool against them or to monitor them. That's where the skepticism rises. So the fact that it can be, as you said, uh, a, a means to influence policy and to broaden democracy and allow young people who aren't old enough to vote to still join up with an e-petition or send a hashtag trending and uh, and bring about policy change is fantastic. Uh, but the other side of that ought be that government you know you use that for good uh, rather than you know overly monitoring or uh, restrictive uh, practices because that's when you get fringe conspiracies and fringe pushback emerging. You know, Australia is the land of middle Australia, you know, common sense politics, uh, mainstream or, 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 or you know, the land of the, of the you know, middle class. And, and that has to be maintained. Otherwise, you do get, again, fringe parties or fringe policies emerging that can, can fray things. So, yeah, I think technology has been a great outcome of the, the pandemic and whether it be politics, whether it be consumer issues, or whether it just be helping our lives run more smoothly, it's uh, the benefits of it are here to stay. Mm. And for the emerging generations, especially the arm of technology, I guess that's probably impacting them very heavily is social media. And like you said, it does empower them. And I loved um, Steph Razy, who was on, we were interviewing her, or I was interviewing her for our episode on the power of kindness. And she said the favorite thing about her generation, because she is a Gen Z, is that they are using their voice. And I think technology does amplify that voice around the issues they care about. But like you mentioned, Mark, it is held in tension with fake news news and creating conspiracies and, and that sort of thing. So definitely something we need to be careful of and, and watch and, and protect and nurture for the for young for the youngsters, for the Gen Zs and for the Gen Alphas. Um, but a note on social media, I guess even trends and, and insights from 2021. Um, it's really interesting. I mean TikTok's just taken off. It was, I think, I believe the most downloaded social media app. Uh, so it's been rising in prominence. And in one of our previous analysis of the year in review, I think it was maybe 2018 or 2019, we just heard of TikTok. And so we were now, now we're talking about it. You know, it's got um, an incredible amount of uh, users. I believe in 2021, it clocked over 1 billion active monthly users. And I will admit I am on TikTok. I don't can contribute any content. I'm not creating any fun dances or anything, but I do like to keep up to date with what the kids are up to and some of the trends. And it's a really interesting platform. Uh, it's often described as, you know, spurring creativity and unique content. It's a platform for humor, entertainment, skills and social issues. Uh, and I think what I've observed as just in, I guess, an anecdotal sense is that brands and organizations I feel in 2021 have really jumped onto that platform now and are going, okay, it's withstood the test of time. It wasn't just a fad or just for a moment. It's kind of here to stay in some ways and that very visual video-based content. But yeah, it's fascinating. And that is where I guess younger generations as well, especially in the last two years, have been able to, I think in some ways, identify with the experience of the, the global experience of the pandemic and mm. go, how do I um, create some resilience? Oh, it's, it's encouraging to see, yeah, people of my own age in other countries struggling or creating content to sort of um, I guess, combat the the downsides of the pandemic in some ways and create humorous content moments to have a laugh. And we know that in Australia, that is a, a coping mechanism here, that, that humor and that dry sort of wit we have. So that's been interesting to see. But some of the other really interesting insights, like 
the most liked Instagram posts of 2021, just in case you're curious, Mark, on some pop culture <laughs> updates, is um, Ariana Grande's wedding photo. And this was followed by Billie Eilish, her new hairstyle. But interestingly, um, neither of these has taken over the most liked Instagram photo of all time. Well, you know what, do you know what it is, Mark? Uh, with the one from the Oscars? Uh, those, no, no. And I think you'll appreciate this. It's a photo of an egg. Like, I'm not joking. There's right. just this photo of this egg and someone somewhere was like, let's kind of prove the power of social media that it isn't just about celebrity culture. It's right. kind of proving yes, a point. And right. all these incredible, like, yeah, you mentioned the Oscars photo with all those celebrities yeah, or yeah. Ariana Grande or some of the most, Cristiano Ronaldo, some of the most popular celebrities on Instagram. They, none of them can outdo this photo of this <laughs> egg. So, I yes. don't know what that says about us as well, it's, humanity. it's great, you know, that that there we're keeping big tech in its place, you know, that people yeah. uh, uh, won't take themselves too seriously. Yeah, we're in the era of of, of influencers and, and we know young people say, I want to be a YouTuber when I grow up and all of this. But at the same time, we recognize that at the end of the day, this is something that's superficial compared to the real part of living and the real world. We saw the pushback uh, with Mark Zuckerberg as he launched meta, you know, and the yep. metaverse. And people said, really? Wow, if that's the future, I think I'll stay in the past, you know. <laughs> and I love that, you know, that we, we we have some good, healthy cynicism to technology. We're not selling our soul for the sake of what big tech is bringing. In fact, it's been a year where people have strongly pushed back on technology. We know in our, our, our research that a lot of parents have concerns around how much time their kids are spending on technology. Teachers see the challenge of it, and young people do as well, and say, I'm on it, but I know that it's not all together good for me and I want to maintain a bit of control over it. We see people using technology like time tracking to control technology, which is great. And and think about Instagram. This was the year where they talked and, and were planning to launch Instagram for kids. And such was the pushback uh, by people around the world that said, hang on, we haven't even solved the mental health issues of adults using and, and being obsessed with posting everything about their life and social media. Let's not expose yet another social media to kids. And so uh, Instagram pulled back from that. And I think that's that's just a great example of the power of people and common sense, even recognizing the great things that technology provides in our life. And, and you know, the big tech do provide some excellent things. They keep us connected. But at the same time, uh, we're, we're not altogether convinced that everything they have for us is virtuous. And so that that's the counter trend that's encouraging the power of the people uh, to, to keep some of these seemingly inevitable trends like technological growth in check. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and even some of the other social media trends and insights also I guess particularly in the world of Twitter, because uh, that's often people's thoughts and and popular conversations and hashtags. It's also interesting to just reflect in for Australian users, the hashtag COVID nineteen was actually knocked off top spot by Ozpol. So that's again interesting, just people engaging in the political conversation using social media. Um, and that that was the nation's most tweeted hashtag. That was followed by hashtag BTS, hashtag crypto and hashtag Tokyo 2020. So again, tells us a lot about what was on the conversation and, and the minds of Australians um, in 2020. So certainly an interesting time. So we've talked about, I guess, a little bit of pop culture there, snuck in a little bit, technology, politics, demographics, how we can, the psychology of uh, looking at trends and looking back to look forward. Um, Mark, economically, 
what do you see ahead for for the year with where Australian sort of consumers and I guess even global consumers are at uh, coming out of yeah coming out of a couple of years of COVID nineteen like you said some some real growth in house prices mm-hmm. changes in the way that we engage with organisations tap and go all these things what's ahead uh, economically do you think well debt is the big challenge ahead and managing that you know mm-hmm. the average Sydney side if they've bought a home in the last two years they have debt of more than $1 million. So that's a lot of, that's a big mortgage. Um, but that's just the average that's required now to buy a home, even having paid the deposit for it. Uh, we are the most indebted that we've ever been. Now, a lot of that might be good debt because we might feel that it's on assets that are going to go up in value and over time they will. But also, as we discuss, you know, interest rates are going to rise. And already, if you look at fixed rates, they are starting to rise. There's tighter constraints there. And of course, we've got a government that's very much in debt. The public debt is massive at the moment, understandably, after keeping the economy afloat uh, with a million Australians out of work, uh, you know, in the, in the st- at the start of the pandemic and JobKeeper really did keep our nation and, and keep our families going well. But the after party is carrying big debt at a, at a national level, and there's not an appetite to continue that debt in the electorate. So managing government debt, managing household debt, um, and ensuring that people aren't too exposed is is the is the challenge, you know. And while the music's playing and, and good times are rolling uh, and prices are going up, house prices that is, um, then then everything's great. But you know, we do know that uh, you can get property corrections. Uh, it's um, I, I'm sure we've all heard real estate stories of late, but I know a number of people that have put properties on the market because they've said, you know, if people are going to pay this sort of money, if they're happy to pay it, I'm happy to accept it. And uh, and some of the prices being paid have been crazy. And that 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 sounds a little bit like like bubble territory. Um, and that's when we ought to be concerned because it does have impacts uh, beyond just the the individual and and the localized economy to to the national one um, and in a time of low inflation and low interest rates we can have flexibility with this large debt and even credit card debt and in the era of afterpay you know consumer debt but the times that we're in now won't always stay in fact uh, some of us remember the late 1990s when we had the dot-com boom and it was similarly good times and yeah the economy seemed like it was irrepressible and um, Alan Greenspan I remember was the federal treasurer uh, federal um, head of the, the federal treasury in the US chair of that and and he he used this phrase irrational exuberance he said you know we've got low inflation and, and low interest rates and prices in the stock market are going up accordingly but he said you know what if uh, we have an unexpected and prolonged contraction what if interest rates turn around and start rising uh, he says what if we're experiencing irrational exuberance and that led to the start of a fall and ultimately a crash and and uh, and it was a bit nasty and so I think in some ways we're in those sorts of territories and prudence is key economically in times like this uh, because the current settings are not going to stay that way. And that's when there is a little bit of exposure. Uh, as they, the, that old saying in economic circles is, it's only when the tide goes out that you realize who's been swimming naked. And a uh, few people have lost their cozies, I think, um, and the tide may well go out. So prudence and good coverage is important in these uncertain times. 
Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, the housing market in Australia is just something that I think is on the on the topic list of every barbecue and probably will be over the summer holidays just in terms of how crazy it's gone. And, and yeah, like you said, what, what people should do if they do have holdings and assets. And yeah, it's, it's certainly something, like you said, I think great advice in terms of being just aware of what's going on. And again, using those insights you shared earlier to just look at the future and, and make your decisions accordingly, maybe with a little bit of <laughs> conservatism in yeah the crazy volatile times that we find ourselves in. Uh, Mark, thinking about the future, and I guess we're, we're at the end of the year of 2021, uh, we asked, we did some some research a couple of weeks ago and we asked Australians, are you optimistic about the future, about 2022? And we found that 77%, so more than three in four respondents said, yep, I agree, I'm optimistic about the future. And like you said, that is a little bit of a coping mechanism and resilience, not to have that too pessimistic view and oh, I'm expecting some more black swans events and the housing market's going to crash. You know, like that's we want to be having a good balance of both. Um, but I think it's interesting because, again, another sort of year in review kind of analysis is uh, Pantone. They put out a lot of colors and, and create colors. And one thing they do each year is sort of create a color of the year. And for 2021, 20, um, the color of the year they have described, well, there's two colors actually. Um, it is illuminating, which is like a yellow and an ultimate gray. Uh, and it's not just they've chosen randomly or they think look nice together. They've got a little bit more of a deeper meaning there. So according to uh, their website, it says these two independent colors highlight how different elements come together to support one another. And they best express the mood for Pantone color of the year in 2021. They go on to say practical and rock solid, but at the same time, warming and optimistic. The union of these two colours is one of strength and positivity. Uh, it is a story of colour that encapsulates deeper feelings of thoughtfulness with the promise of something sunny and friendly. Uh, so probably pretty apt in terms of yeah, some of the challenges the last two years of experience. But like you said, Mark, we probably need to just be hopeful and optimistic, but also aware and just a bit wise in terms of what could come our way. Uh, in light of everything we've talked about today, do you have any words of advice for listeners who are thinking about the future and they're like, oh, should I be optimistic? Should I be pessimistic? You know, any any words of advice there? <laughs> Definitely keep it optimistic. You know, that's important. <laughs> I, I guess three, three points I would make here to keep in mind. Firstly, don't travel alone. In terms of life and the uncertainties that we face, in other words, let's not be arrogant to think that we can handle whatever is going to come around that corner uh, by ourselves, that we have the wisdom and the skill and the strength to handle it. We can't. And we're great to have good governments here. We're blessed to have communities around us. It's the land where people will step out and help others in need. And let's be open to that. And and let's get some input from others. Let's run things past other people. Let's travel in community and, and serve others and, and hopefully have others gathered to, to help us when we're in need. That would be the first one because uh, what we're facing, the speed of change and the size of the trends mean that we definitely need support. Uh, the second uh, bit of input is uh, make decisions with the long term in mind. Back to that analogy of driving the car, uh, let's not just plan for what we can see as far as the eye can see, but let's extend that frame. Let's have a broader frame of reference. Let's, let's look at the peripheral vision. Let's think about what might not only be likely, but maybe some of those unlikely things and plan with that in mind, have a bit of reserve, 
be prepared for the rainy day. I think that's that's just so important to have that longer term view, a sustainable view. You know, because if we're if we're down to the wire, uh, that doesn't give a lot of margin, a lot of leverage. If um, if suddenly things come unstuck, so the longer term view is is definitely a way to live things, pace ourselves for um, for the, the longer journey. And the third one is use the head as well as the heart. You know, I think it's great that we're optimistic. I think it's good that we maintain that that positivity and that we believe the best is is ahead. That's fantastic. But we also have to use some rationale uh, as well as the the emotional um, to get us by. And uh, and and if something can go wrong, it may well go wrong. Let's prepare ourselves for that. Uh, let's let's not live hoping that there's a safety net to catch us, but let's have some of that in place because with logic, with rational, with realism, as well as optimism, I think we do prepare ourselves for the uncertainty, the rainy day, the black swan events, as you say, and uh, and then we can get by, you know, the, the, the uncertain future, the challenges that will come our way and hopefully get by and not just survive, but thrive uh, amidst all of that and do it with others and in good spirits and for the long term. And if we can do that, uh, well, that, that means that we're not intimidated by the future, but we're prepared for it. And that makes uh, living uh, a journey, but an exciting one. And that's that's what it's all about. Yeah. And that, that was such great tips, Mark, uh, in terms of yeah, not going alone, planning for the long term and l- viewing the world and the trends and the insights with head and heart. And I think it's a dose of realism and a dose of optimism uh, in, in equal measure. So very great tips for the listeners. So thank you so much uh, for so eloquently yeah, coming on with a big task of talking about a whole year in review. I think we got through quite a few things, different areas of topics and some great insights there for our listeners. So thanks again, Mark. Thank you. And that does bring us to the end of the episode. And a big thank you to everyone who has journeyed with us on the podcast in this first season so far and for engaging with our content. Uh, If you are enjoying it, we would absolutely love to hear from you, especially in the form of of a review, which we know are really hard to come by. And as I've mentioned in previous episodes, we do read every single one and appreciate your words of encouragement there. So thank you very much uh, for those who have left a review. Thanks for engaging with our content. If you're keen to find out about more of these insights and trends, mccrindle.com is probably the best place for you to head and type in the search bar there, anything you want to know. We've got lots of available resources there. Um, And you can hit follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to get updates of when we release new episodes of the podcast. Uh, So thanks again for listening and bye for now.